All right, so welcome back. We have a wonderful guest. I'm very excited to be talking with her. Uh, it's Dr. Rena Mullick. Uh, she's a urologist. We're in nearby state of Maryland. I've known Dr. Mullick now for, God, how long has it been? Over 10 years, right? We, we go way, way more back. than 10 years. We've been doing <laughs> <since> college. <laughs> yeah, so this is way back. And it was funny because, like, you know, I, I knew you were doing, like, medicine and urology. And then, like, I'd see, like, some videos and stuff, like, on Instagram. And I was like, oh, she's doing some cool things. And then, like, I, like, really looked into it. And I was like, oh, wait a second. We're doing, like, more than cool things. <laughs> we've actually got, like, we've got your gold plaque behind you over there. So I was like, yeah. So I was like, let's talk about, like, all the stuff. And I'll let you talk about yourself a little bit, a little bit about your background, education, and personal stuff. And we'll we'll get into there. Sure. Yeah. So uh, thank you for that nice introduction. So as, as Dr. Mirza mentioned, we've known each other since we were in college and we used to dance together. Um, we were originally on separate teams and then later we came on a, on a joint effort, I guess I would say, joint team. And so that was really fun. And that's how I got to know uh, Soman, Dr. Mirza. And, um, and uh, so that's a little fun fact about me is I used to dance Bhangra um, competitively and was really loved it, still love it, but don't dance competitively anymore. It's a North Indian style of dance, which is very upbeat and energetic and super fun. Uh, so I am, as Dr. Marisa mentioned, a urologist. I trained, uh, I went to New York for medical school, which is where I decided to go into urology. Really fell in love with surgery, but wanted to do something that uh, was very kind of specialized. And I looked into um, urology and ENT, which is ear, nose, and throat, and just really liked the kind of things we do in urology. We do a real diversity of, of surgery and medicine and robotics, like small small cases in the operating room, big cases, uh, big open, big robotic, um, endoscopic, which means using cameras and things. And so it was just really an exciting thing to learn and train for. And then I just love what we do, like the things we talk about. I have no problem talking about sexual dysfunction or very intimate things with people. And I knew that I could really thrive in this field. And lastly, urologists are just a really great group of people. So it, it was a, a great fit for me. Um, so then, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I think urologists are an important part of the team. So, you know, we'll put this out there as like a warning, content warning, I guess. We're going to use words like penises and vaginas, and we're going to use all the words that come along with genital health because um, it's super, super important to use those words. And that's one of the things we'll talk about is the way that's kind of portrayed. We'll get there in a little bit. But um, you also do, aside from just, you know, surgeries and stuff, you also talk about sexual health. So let's talk mm -hmm. a little bit about about that and, and what you do with that too. What does a urologist do with that? Yeah, so as a urologist, we do lots of different things. We take care of prostates and bladders and kidneys and tumors in those areas, kidney stones, all sorts of things like that. Um, we take care of infertility issues. We take care of children with bladder issues. Uh, we take care of women with urinary incontinence and prolapse, which is like a vaginal hernia. And then we take care of sexual dysfunction for both men and women. And so what that entails is having issues along any spectrum of sex, which could be arousal, which could be climax, which could be sustaining an erection for men. And I'll say men for penis owners, but um, you know anyone who has a penis uh, and having difficulty with ach achieving climax um, and, and also just general libido sorts of things. So and then pain and, and those sorts of complications that come up throughout that experience are kind of part of our area of expertise. 
Yeah. Sexual health is something that is very important, right? Even if we're talking a really psychoanalytical, you know, the whole sex drive, life drive, the drive to that is, you know, eros and libido, et cetera. That's very, very important. And we know that, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here, because we know that in mental health psychiatry, sex is a huge part of life. Um, it's one of the fields, I think, that psychiatry gets tasked with talking about, asking about compared to so many other fields. But we work with you all as well when we need to. Well, and they're um, so interrelated, right? Like a lot of sexual dysfunction can be super trantorial or, you know, coming from psychological issues or vice versa, sexual dysfunction can cause major psychological issues. So I think this conversation is so important because a lot, there's a lot of commingling of what we manage here. And, and I think it's, it's really important to discuss it from both aspects. Yep, yep. Talk to us about, we'll talk about sexual health, right? So what is, you know, we, we touched on it a little bit, but like the importance of it, why is it something that we need to be discussing? Why do we need to be not shy to talk about it? Why do we not to be, why shouldn't we be queasy when we're asking these questions or discussing these things? Well, first of all, it's a huge part of our lives, right? You kind of alluded to that. It's part of intimacy. It's part of brings happiness. Um, it, so that's important, but also it's a marker of your overall health. So we say in, in urology, sexual health is health, right? So if you're having issues, for example, a man is having issues with erections, it could be a sign that there's actually reduced blood flow to that area. And because the arteries to the penis are so much smaller than arteries to the heart, for example, it may be the first sign that you're getting issues of heart disease or high blood pressure or diabetes. And so it's really important to pay attention to those things. And then also it can cause, as I mentioned earlier, really severe psychological problems in people who become very insecure, upset, anxious, depressed about issues with their sex drive. And so um, it's a huge part of our lives and I wish there wasn't so much taboo about it, but part of it is that sexual education in America and all over the world is really poor. And so of course no one knows what's normal and all they see of normal is like what they watch on pornography or um, things like that, which, which can create a lot of problems potentially if you don't recognize that that's made up, that's fake and that's doctored to look a certain way and it's not really what happens in a sexual encounter. I think you brought up something really, really important. Um, we don't talk about sexual education. You know, I remember sex ed back in what, fifth grade health class or something like that, seventh grade health class, and had no idea what the hell was going on, right? It was very, very kind of basic, um, you know, and then we didn't really do much with it after that. Um, so it was something that, you know, again, we, we learned this on our own, right? We, it's hard to talk about with parents, with family members, because uh, there is awkwardness that comes along with it. Um, and then again, porn is this thing that we learn from. And again, like you're describing it exactly. It is, it is fake, right? It is a fake thing. It is not real life. So, absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. And you know, I wish sex ed was more comprehensive, but you know, to they probably teach you how to put on a condom and obtain consent, which are really important things, but there's so much more to it. Yeah. What are some of maybe the challenges that come along with being in sexual health, right? We, we talk about kind of there's professional immaturity almost towards it. They're like, oh, you're, you're doing sex work or you're talking about that kind of stuff. And 
do you get that from people from maybe your colleagues or people you know outside of just urology field that like what are you doing and, and how can you do this kind of stuff or, or not being taken seriously at all well, I probably live in a bit of an echo chamber. You know, I surround myself with people who like what I'm doing and appreciate it. I've certainly, um, you know, I, I when I started this, my YouTube channel, I went back to my hometown, which is Buffalo, New York, and I went to an event and everybody was like, oh my God, you're like a celebrity. You're, and this was like literally at a very small channel, but they were so proud of me and no one brought up the fact that I was talking about sex. And even I was talking to my parents and I'm like, oh, you can't watch that video that I just made. And they're like, why not? We're adults. And, but, but so for the most part, I think people aren't saying it to my face. I mean, they may be saying it behind their backs, but I did have, when I was, you know, kind of going through training and had just finished, I remember telling a South Asian man, like an older man, like, hey, I'm a urologist. And he literally like laughed out loud. Like, why would you ever choose to be a urologist? But I think... Um, in general, yeah, there's stigma that you're talking about sexual health and you're, you know, you're probably promiscuous or you're probably a certain way, um, or, you know, this is not as important as cancer curing or, or other things, right, that people do. And I think that, you know, everyone has a place, everything we do is valuable, but this is a big pain point for a lot of people. And so I value what I'm doing and I think other people do too. Yeah. And it's one of those things where it's, the field of medicine where people don't understand it or have a lot of misconceptions. One of my, I had somebody on uh, earlier who was a sleep medicine doctor and they're like, what is sleep medicine? Like, what is even that field of medicine as a whole? And it's the concept of when we look at it and say, oh, we spend a third of our lives in sleep. Like it's important. It plays a role. It plays a huge function in everything. Sexual health is right up there, you know, stronger. And again, like we talked about has so many, impacts on so many different levels of health as a whole. Yeah. When you talked about, or you brought it up kind of your parents and in, you know, being South Asian Punjabi, we're both Punjabi, you know, let's say Punjabi, you know, you know, if we want to, but <laughs> you know, we could do, um, there is such a stigma, I think within the field or not within the field, sorry, within, within the community. Um, we, you know, we look at India, Pakistan, India's what second most populated country mm -hmm. in the world. Uh, Pakistan is, you know, farther behind, but it's still like a top 15 country in the world. Um, so clearly people are having sex over there. Um, lots and lots of it. And, you know, we have this, when we look at things like Bollywood or other, you know, Bollywood, it's our, the, the film industry over there for a long time, like you couldn't embrace each other. Like the couples, we'd always talk, these movies would be about love and marriage, but like, there wasn't kisses on the lips. There wasn't any of that stuff. It was all behind, there were no sex scenes, of course not. Like this is all behind closed doors and very, very taboo. Talk to us a little bit about that, just like amongst the South Asian community, being a South Asian woman, you know, being Punjabi, like what's that like or what's that reaction as a whole been? Like you kind of said a little bit, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been really, um, for the most part, positive in that there's a lot of people from the South Asian continent that follow me and look to me for knowledge because they're not getting it anywhere else, right? And there's so much shame in our society, which is wild to me because we created the Kama Sutra, but like still we shame people for wanting to have sex or finding people attractive or masturbating. Like these are all normal activities. And so there's so much shame behind it and that creates all this psychological drama around sex, right? And then people have issues enjoying sex, climaxing, 
performing, whatever it is. And, and it's, it's a real struggle, I think, in our society in South Asians. And so it's super valuable. There are really big influencers in India who are trying to break that mold and talk more about sexual health. And they have a great reach. So I'm super excited to see that because obviously like people want this information and they're receptive to it. So I'm sure they face some backlash too, but for the most part, you know, people want it and they're starting to see the value of it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we need to start opening up those conversations and having them clearly people of our parents' generation are not going to come and talk to me about that. Right. Um, but certainly I see plenty of people of our age and slightly older who are coming to me to ask questions about sex and coming to me because they're having issues and, and having these conversations. And I see there's like a challenge, right? They're struggling to have the conversation because it's just so taboo, but they're doing it, right? They're putting themselves out there. They're trying to learn. They're trying to improve their lives and, you know, be healthier and, and just be happier. Yeah. And do you feel, I mean, like with family or friends, even just like, do you got, again, pushback or anything like that amongst the community per se, or, or not so much? Well, I didn't really ask permission, so <laughs> I think That's I just did it. it. And and yeah. by the time people had a chance to say anything, it was already too far too far out yeah. there. So. I think that's I think that's what we've all kind of done <laughs> is we've just like kind of we're like this is what we're doing and we're here and now it's too late so yeah we're not turning good. back <laughs> yeah it's too late now so good 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 no I think like I like we're saying is it's a huge thing in the community because there it is so taboo um, mm -hmm. and we don't talk about it enough at all and again it's a problem so coming over a little bit into psychiatry right into psychological stuff and we've talked about it you know for the longest time i remember watching like masters of sex um and mm -hmm. there was like an episode that was like in the beginning when um what's his name william masters was like talking with mm -hmm. one of the people about like oh i want to go study sexual mm -hmm. human sexual behavior and he's an obstetrician, you know, he's a real life person. He's one of the, the leading researchers about sexual health and everything that's there. And I think in the, in the, in the show, his leader of the department was like, that's what the psychiatrists do. Leave that to the psychiatrists, leave that to them. Don't, what are you doing looking about human sexual behavior and don't study this stuff. We touched on it a little bit, but what, what do you, how much do you work? with psychologists, psychiatrists, therapists, et cetera, or how much, how much of that do you bring up into your daily life or work? I mean, it's so valuable, right? Like so many people, I don't, as a surgeon, I don't have a lot of time to go into sexual behaviors and psycho psychology and, and what's going, you know, what, what are your blocks and your, you know, what is like, just the, there's a ton that goes into it. Right. So I very often recommend that my patients see sex therapists or see a psychiatrist or see a psychologist even who's, who's interested in sexual health so that they can talk about this in a deeper way and really kind of work on the things that, and the challenges that they have. And I found that the people who go through with it are super, you know, they're just, they're doing better, right? They're super happy and even accepting if they have a medical condition, right? Like if they've developed erectile dysfunction or they have chronic pelvic pain or whatever it is, right? They are able to accept that and move towards it and find other ways to, to still have an intimate sexual life with their partner. And so I think that that's the other thing that's really important about it. So it, that, that working together is super important for patients to have access 
to, to that. And, you know, I think sometimes that's challenging because it's not always covered by insurance, not always easy to access, but, but it is really important and, and, you know, a huge part of the battle. Yeah, the access is a, a major issue, uh, 1,000%. Um, but, yeah, like I think you were saying, talking about it is, again, the, the psychological impacts both ways. Again, chicken or egg, which one is it causing it? It absolutely, absolutely occurs. What are some common physical health conditions um, that may show up that may lead to sexual dysfunction? Yeah, so in men, very commonly we see erectile dysfunction. Over 30% of men after the age of 50 experience some degree of erectile dysfunction. And it's really because high blood pressure and diabetes are rampant in society and those cause decreased blood flow to the penis and heart disease, right? So, so that's the number one thing that we see. Um, we also see low testosterone, which is which happens to every person, who, every man essentially, because testosterone decreases as you age, and so that can affect libido and interest in sex. We see changes in sensation for both men and women, where they'll have decreased sensation. Again, those are age-related things. And then for women, we often see you know changes in, in libido as well. Um, as well as reaching climax as they age. And then, you know, just other things like not realizing that there are medical issues that are simple. Like, for example, after menopause, women lose estrogen. And so giving women vaginal estrogen can help reduce vaginal dryness and make sex way more comfortable. Or even using lubricant, right? People are like, oh, I don't need a lubricant or why should you need a lubricant? But like, it makes it more slippery, it makes it more enjoyable, and it's easy to get. You just go to the drugstore. So like, it's, it's something that can easily improve the experience. And there's just like interpersonal things that can affect can affect your sex life. And so working on those, even just like making sure there's enough time for arousal before having penetrative intercourse can go a long way in improving the, the, um, the whole thing. So I think ultimately the things that we see are along that spectrum. And some of them have, you know, medical or even surgical treatment options. And some of them, you know, don't. And for women, we often see there's lots of different things that can affect sex sex and women often come in with pain with sex and sex should never be painful so those also can have a number of medical or potentially even procedural things that can help what are some of like so people who may be struggling um sexually functioning um mm. what are some you know we have we know about the, the little blue pills right the the viagras all the, the pde5 inhibitors that are there help with that i know like there was for for women. Um, there was the medication that was mm -hmm. it called Addy that came out uh, mm -hmm. in the past couple of years. What does that do? Are you familiar with that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that is for uh, women with low libido in the premenopausal period. So before going through menopause, it's taken daily at night, um, and um, and helps with arousal. There's also bremelanotide, which is an injection that you give yourself before you want to have sex. So before you want to want, you give yourself an injection. And, uh, and that also works to increase libido in the premenopausal space. In the postmenopausal space, there's nothing FDA approved in the US, but people do use off-label testosterone and other things to help with libido in that, in that age group. Okay. And then like surgical options, I know you brought up some surgical stuff. What are some surgical options for potential treatments that are there? 
Yeah, so for, for men, um, you know, with erectile dysfunction that's not being treated with, the, we have more than medication. So we have um, vacuum erection devices, uh, injections called intracarinosal or injections into the erectile, erectile tissue um, with medication. And so after you've gone through, you know, a variety of those things and combinations of those things, if they're not working, you can get inflatable penile prostheses or, you know, rigid penile prostheses that can be placed. Um, that will basically allow you to have an erection. Um, and so, so those are great options if you've gotten to that point and you and your partner agree that's a good option to have. For women, it really depends on the etiology of the issue. So sometimes if it's pelvic floor dysfunction, we can use Botox. Um, we can also use it for certain areas of the vulva that might have pain. And so those are kind of um, also off-label sorts of things. But, um, you know, mostly for women, a lot of it is kind of figuring out where the issue is and then working on that specific problem. Yeah. One of the issues when we talk about mm -hmm. psychiatry and the medications that are there, mm -hmm. you know, there's a there's a kind of like this dual impact of them. Um because we know that so many psychiatric medications mm -hmm. cause issues with sexual dysfunction. We also know that like what's the treatment for something like premature ejaculation, something like Paxil or certainly we use an SSR. We use the same medication sometimes to do that. How much do you run into that? And I know we talked about it a little bit before we recorded, but how much do you kind of like run into that or see that as uh, something that brings people to you? Yeah, we definitely see it um, pretty commonly, I would say. But I think most of the times, if if someone is really um, need like in a situation where they've worked hard to find a regimen that works for them as far as antidepressants, then at that point, you know, we can try to overcome it with medications or other things. But it's really important to prioritize your mental health. So, you know, I think that we we work on those things. And I say, you know, you can talk to your psychiatrist if you're at the point where you want to switch something. But if you're in a good place right now. You know, I think that's a discussion you have to have with them. And I don't ever touch the medications because I don't want to mess with what they've worked so hard to get right at that point. But if they can switch, I often ask them to try and switch to another medication like Wellbutrin, for example, that has less sexual side effects and can still be very effective for patients who are struggling with depression. Um, so we see it often. And I think the, the good news is very often if they switch, the symptoms go away and they, they are getting better if that's the cause, right? Sometimes there's multiple different things going on it's not just one thing and so you know I think also people can get fixated on that being the cause and then feeling like oh they're never going to get better and then your brain is really powerful so um, but generally speaking if that's the cause and the medications fixed usually people get better you're right in that the medication the regimen that's there with a psychiatrist or whoever the prescriber is it's, it's really really important and unfortunately I think you know we see this with the reasons that people stop these medications, the number one reason we often see are the sexual side effects. And it's something that people have, a lot of my patients sometimes will have trouble bringing it up even. They'll be like, they kind of get a little bit wishy-washy on it. They're like, oh, I just, you know, something, I just don't like it. It's not quite doing it for me. And they get very vague. And then oftentimes I have to just kind of directly ask, like, are you having sexual side effects? And that's when they'll say like, yes, right? And I think this for like a lot of, doctors or people who are in the field who may be listening, like just asking, saying the question, you know, using the words, is this a sexual issue? Like it opens the doors a lot. Right. And how, how much of that do you see where like 
again, they're, they're seeing you, you're a little bit more specialized than that. Um, but like, when you say these words, when you use the words, when you normalize a talk, how much of an impact does that have with opening up your patients a bit more? Yeah, I mean, they're waiting, they're kind of following your cue a little bit, right? So I, I can tell immediately when someone's nervous to see me, very often, you know, male patients before they get to know me are like, I've never seen a female urologist or I've never seen a female doctor before. And they're kind of nervous to talk about their erections with me, right? Um, but I'm like, look, I do this day in and day out and I normalize it and I ask them straightforward and I say, you know, I go I go deep, like is libido okay? Are you orgasming okay? Are you ejaculating okay? Is everything okay, you know? And and me saying that, one, I'm identifying that it's not just one issue, right? It could be a number of different things, but also like I think about all of that and so you should be okay talking about any problem in that area and then very quickly they open up. Yeah, it's, and I think that's, the big thing is where it's like we have to we have to take that lead as the docs that are there and just open up our patients a bit more to share. Yeah. One of the things that I've been tagged in a bunch or kind of gotten at a bunch like online, you know, something that I never really came across before in training was never really brought up was PSSD, post SSRI or permanent sexual SSRI, sexual dysfunction. Um is that something that you've kind of come across or much at all or not so much? I haven't seen permanent side effects. I've certainly seen them, like I said, with medications, but I've never seen it permanently. And there's no denying that they cause them, right? We know this is an issue. As you mentioned, we often prescribe these medications for premature ejaculation. So to delay ejaculation, we'll often prescribe these medications. And so, um, you know, I think it, it, we know that this is a side effect and it's a common one, right? Uh, but that, but I've not seen it persist beyond discontinuation. There are certain medications like finasteride where we are seeing it persist. And so I've really minimized how much I use that. But in certain patients where sex is not an issue, it's a great option for you know, patients who have urinary symptoms. Um, and so I think that those are, uh, those are important things to know, but I've not seen it last permanently. And I haven't seen the data on it being a permanent type of issue at all. Yeah, I, similar in a way, like it, it, again, it was not really brought up to me. It's been more kind of tags online and researching on my own. And again, there's, there's really mm -hmm. scant, scant data on it. Um, there's not much out there. But you kind of brought up like the finasteride. So t can you talk us about that? So oh, who knows? Maybe it's kind of similar in a way. But what, what does finasteride do? What do we use it for? And then mm -hmm. how do we kind of deal with that or work with that? Yeah, so finasteride is often used uh, in a low dose for hair loss. So sometimes people will use it for hair loss in a low dose. Or at a higher dose, you'll use it for enlarged prostate symptoms. So for men who have a prostate, it can get enlarged as you age. It's very common. And that can make it harder for urine to flow through the P-tube or the urethra where urine is supposed to come out. And so finasteride actually shrinks the prostate over time. It takes several months but it works by actually shrinking the prostates, allowing you to urinate more freely and easily without symptoms. And then like, what, what are some treatments again? So if somebody has sexual issues related to finasteride use that may be longer lasting, what do we do for those people? Yeah, I mean, we just kind of work on identifying what the specific issue is, right? Is it erectile dysfunction, loss of libido? And then we work on the same kind of treatments we have for patients in those areas to help them, 
you know, improve their function. So it could be using a low dose of tadalafil every day or using as needed PDE5 inhibitors. And then with libido, it really just depends. If we check their testosterone, we can augment that if needed. Um, and things like that. So, so they're, they're, it's somewhat the same whether whatever the cause is, and that's why it's a struggle because there's nothing that's been specifically found to be more effective in these patients than others. Okay. One of the other questions I got like from Twitter was the prevalence of priapism from trazodone. I think when anybody who's gone through med school has always kind of had these this is word associations in your mind and trazodone mm -hmm. gives you bone right that's the one that people get stuck with <laughs> yeah. um and it's the never-ending properism for those who are not familiar is uh an, an erection that doesn't go away right and it's the same thing yeah. with like longer the commercials you see hours. longer yeah. than four hours right so is that something that you've seen or come across or is this just a memorize it for the test kind of thing i've seen it but i would say it's not that common i mean i don't know how often trazodone is prescribed i think it's pretty often right you guys use it a lot i i don't we use, see we use it. a decent amount yeah yeah i don't see it to that degree like i probably can remember one in the last few years that was from trazodone and we see them pretty not infrequently um in the er here because we're a big tertiary care center so we see a lot of it and i would say i don't see that much but that being said you know it can happen and that's something we know about and, and probably patients should be counseled that it's a possibility and they should go to the er if it happens i think the big thing about people who have issues with their sexual organs or genital organs, they don't come to the ER when they have issues because they're scared or nervous. And to be quite honest, I don't blame them. They come to the ER and they get asked these same questions over and over by different doctors and not everyone, and nurses and everyone in the ER. And then they're not often treated very respectfully, you know, and I think that that's a real challenge for them. So I, I understand there, I, I empathize with their plight, but it's really important to come in because the sooner you do, the quicker we can fix things and the less chance of long lasting damage you can have. Yeah, I, I always have this like image burned into my mind of like some intern, um, an intern, so a psych intern, and I'm rotating through the emergency room, and you know I see this one guy, and he has grapefruit-sized testicle, and me, you know, however many months being a had the doctor in front of me, I was like, that's testicular cancer, you know, I, and I can tell this from you know just by looking at it, and it's like, how long has this been going on for? Oh, months, months, and it's like this exactly right, like you got to come in there sooner rather than later, or else this stuff develops into these huge, huge problems. Yeah, yeah, and for example, testicular cancer is very treatable, 95% cure rates, so if you get treated appropriately and quickly, um, and uh, same thing with penile cancer, it can be very, uh, very effectively treated, so if you see something on your penis or genitals, please come in. All right, we talked, started off by being like, we're, we're bunger buddies from back, back in the day. <laughs> We'll pivot our, we'll go, we'll shift a little bit. Um, Bunga Buddies, what, what is Bunga? And I know we, we've talked about it, but for people who may not be familiar with it, what, what is Bunga? Yeah, so it was actually started in Punjab, which is a state in the northern part of India, which was also, which kind of got divided into Pakistan and India. And um, it was a dance that uh, farmers did to kind of bring about, you know, to celebrate the harvest and, and uh, just celebrate. And so um, it is something that originated predominantly male only and, and now has become a very, it's a very part, big part of our culture. And we, 
you always find us Punjabis dancing Bhangra at events, parties, things like that for fun. But we also have this culture of doing kind of competitive choreographed Bhangra dances. And there's competitions, you know, all around the country, all around North America. And um, it's a great place to meet people. And, and, um, and it's fun and a really great way to get involved in your culture and try something new and great, great exercise and all of it. It's, it's very, very physically demanding when it's done. You know, in the competitive stuff like we were doing it way back in the day, it was like, this is like a sport, right? This is a, it's a real yeah. thing. Um, and you, you talked about it, that it was traditionally male. Um, and, you know, part of when we started off, our, our team was a all-female team. And mm -hmm. it was really kind of revolutionary-ish in a way that this is how we kind of started off. First, I think one of the first, like, East Coast all-girls teams, all-women's team. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like for you, I guess, part of being being on that team compared to being, I know before you were on, on co-ed teams, but what was that like for you? I mean, it was like, it was amazing. So I, I have to say I felt honored to be on that team, and it was like everybody was so welcoming. And before I had been on that team, I had tried uh, to join a different team, a different all-girls team, and it was not a welcoming scenario. And so... Being on that team, Sean Murtiarandi was the name of the team, and um, I still think of those those people very fondly who were my teammates, and um, I just really felt like it was a special environment, and we were just all there to support each other and be um, and have fun too. Like, yeah, we wanted to do well, but it was also about having fun and and really like um, supporting each other in our lives in Bangra and out of it. So it was great. Yeah, like I mean, I know they were, you know. We had performance like at my wedding. I think you had my somebody at your too, wedding yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, like so. These are these are they're lifelong lifelong friends that have been made from this. So I think it's really, you know, for people who are in the culture, um, South Asians, you know, second third generations, whatever it may be, like it's really important to kind of keep in touch with the culture, um, keep in touch with the history. Like I gave a talk out in Wisconsin recently uh, back in the spring, and you know. The, to college kids and they had no idea what partition was <laughs> and, and it was kind of like mind-blowing to me because i was like how do you not know that partition of india of 1947 yeah. as this huge event in our lives um, but being able to be part of a culture get involved with it learn the history through there so 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 important yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's 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 um it's important. Like we are a melting pot in the United States, but it's, it's great. I love learning about other people's culture and I love sharing mine with others. And I think that's, you know, that's part of the reason you do it is like you get to connect with people about their own cultural differences. Speaking of sharing. So the other thing we'll touch about the gold plaque in the back there, but so YouTube, how, why did this start? How did it start? And then, it's gone from there, right? You have, I think I was looking at the other day, it's like 1.35 million mm -hmm. followers on YouTube, which is mind blowing. Yeah. So yeah. talk about like <laughs> how you got into like creating and then going from there. Yeah. So I, um, I was never like 
never premeditated that I wanted to be a YouTuber influencer. Like that's not, that's not how I identified previously. So I, um, I was really passionate about health literacy. I realized that like we would have patients come in for 15 minute visits and we'd talk to them about their surgery and they'd have their surgery. And if they didn't understand the potential complications or like how their life would change after surgery, then we failed, right? It doesn't matter how beautiful the surgery is. And so that was kind of where my interest lied is I had a patient in, in, um, residency who she was had a surgery where we reconstructed her bladder and we created a channel where she would have to catheterize to empty her bladder and it was that she would now have to catheterize herself every four to six hours to empty her bladder otherwise she would you know she'd uh, risk damaging it right and then she kept coming into the the hospital getting admitted to the ICU with infections and problems and it just kept happening and we eventually realized that she just didn't get it. Like she didn't, she would say that she understood the calf, but she never really understood. And, and I was, my mind was blown because we ultimately had to change her diversion to a different type so that she wouldn't have to catheterize. But I mean, she had to go undergo multiple ICU admissions and another surgery because she didn't get it. And so that was like when it really clicked with me that this was such a value. And so I'm in academic medicine and I wanted to really do research in this area. Maybe it's going to be years before I find like an evidence-based way that might be better than what we're already doing to teach patients. So I said, let me just start putting content out on social media. And I was already on Twitter, like using it for professional reasons. So I started on, on Instagram, realized that it's not a great place to share content because it just disappears. I mean... Uh, it, it, it's a great place to share content, but for what I was doing, it, it kind of like, if you're not searching for it, you won't find it. And so um, I started doing YouTube, which is, you know, a, the number two search engine in the world and started making content there. And I really had no idea what I was going to do. If you look back at my very old videos, it was like interviews with other urologists and um, reaction videos. And then I kind of just listened to my audience and found out what they really wanted to hear about. And I started making content about that. So now it's, it's like, what do people want to know and how can I answer it for them in the easiest way possible that's still interesting, right? That makes them want to watch. And so it's become a really like normal part of my routine. Like I'm going to script and record videos every week and I, you know, my husband manages it and, and manages a team of people that kind of help us with editing and all sorts of things. But it started off with just like a, a hobby and, uh, and it's been super rewarding and um, amazing and I still don't I, I can't tell you the only thing I can tell you is you got to be consistent and which you you're great at but like being consistent and continuing to show up for your audience is what really matters and listening to what they want to hear yeah I think like you, you touched upon it is that there is a shift I think in medicine um, in society as a whole right is that the the curtain behind stuff is being pulled back on so many things, right? Like I'm, you know, I always kind of say I'm a, I'm a big wrestling fan and, you know, the wrestling world has very much, you know, pulled back the curtain and said this, that we're, we understand this, this is scripted and we're going to let people in behind the scenes a little bit more. And I think it's increased the connection with the, with the performers, with the wrestlers that are there. Similarly to medicine, like medicine used to be the, the old boys club. And, you know, I think you're doing a great job with just saying, Hey, I am a South Asian woman, urologist and we're going to talk about these things and again you you provide so much wonderful content in that way and it's like you're right it is permanent it's there you've creating this database you've created this legacy in a way that's there that no matter what 
the knowledge is there. The knowledge is out there, and people can can learn from it. Um, so that's I, I love it. I think it's great. I think that's why people are getting into it more, and I think that's why patients are responding to it more. Yeah, how's, absolutely. How's, you, what's the feedback been from colleagues? I guess I want to say, and then maybe people who are older school like you know again i know in psychiatry especially it was like very much like Shh, we have to be quiet we don't tell anybody anything and now you're going out and telling all of our secrets what are you doing <laughs> how how's that been for for you and then maybe some of the older generations yeah so i think um you know i i didn't so i got got very big i guess it, during covid right and so i didn't go to any conferences everything was on zoom and so when i went to my first conference after covid right which was not that long ago um i was really shocked at how like warm and 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 like supportive everybody was because i didn't expect that at all i was kind of like people might think i'm like self-absorbed or you know whatever or what am I doing why am I like you know and so I didn't you know I didn't expect that but it's been a very warm and supportive place which I was surprised and then you know of course there's people who like they won't say anything but they'll like look at me a little funny or um you know whatever but I don't really care about that and then I think for the older generation I mean a lot of them are like truly impressed right They're like wow like this is this is amazing and then the ones who aren't I mean they don't say much right like I had it was interesting we had um we gave a talk at one of the conferences about social media and one of the and I gave an example of how professionalism is kind of a gray area for example like women posting in bikinis the whole men bikini thing um which is not unprofessional you know was thought of as and he goes well you know, this, this man, this older man responded with saying, well, why would, why would any woman want to post a picture of herself in a bikini? Like, that's just like narcissism. And then my friend responded with, well, aren't we all engaging in academic narcissism here? Like, we're all sitting here talking to you on a stage and you're standing up to make a comment. Like, we're all engaging in that. So it's just a different form, right? Like, everybody wants to be heard and we're just putting our voice somewhere else. Yeah, and I think it's really important too because it gives those people who may struggle in certain situations in certain academic quote unquote real medicine world. You know, I'm, I always say it's like I'm, you know, I never did research in my career. I was never a person. I could never sit in a lab. I could never do that kind of stuff. I could never run trials. Right? That's not my personality. My personality is doing this. Your personality is being outspoken. And I had somebody else on before who was talking about like. You know, she does, Dr. Jesse Gold, she's a psychiatrist who does some stuff in, in style and other magazines and stuff. So it's like, who reads JAMA? How many people read JAMA, right? Our own people, right? The Journal of American Medical Association, like our own doctors. But who reads in style? Who watches the news? Everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. You reach so many more people by doing this. Yeah, and it's, it's all about what your goals are, right? Like people who are writing in JAMA, they're creating discoveries that are valuable for our field. And if that's what you like, wonderful. Like by all means, like I want you to do that. And I do research too, but I, you know, I, 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 you know, that's kind of like a separate thing. Right. And I think this is like, my goal has always been to have an impact. Like if I'm going to have a platform of any kind, I want it to be impactful. Like I can see 40 to 50 patients a week in my clinic. Right. Or I can see, you know, uh, four million a week who watch my videos right like um so you know it's it's uh it's different it's definitely uh different 
were you surprised by mm-hmm. the growth? Were you kind of like taken aback and being like, oh my God, this is a, this has changed my life in a way. Or, and how has it changed your life? Absolutely. I mean, I never expected if you had told me two years ago or three years ago that I'd have a million over a million subscribers, I would have been like, you're nuts. Like, <laughs> you know, and, um, and I think I've, uh, it's changed my life because I think there's, I'm thinking outside the box in ways I never would have, you know, like how can I impact even more in a different way? And I would never have done that before. I would have just done the straight and narrow thing and kept working and I'm going to keep working. That's not the point. But like now I can think of like, how can I use my free time to do something impactful when I'm not, you know, being a mom and a wife and all those other things that I do. But, um, but you know, like we all, we all need hobbies. And so, um, this, this hobby has become kind of a vocation almost and it's been it's it's exciting it's really fun yeah and i think that's part of it too is there becomes that shift or at some point in time where you have to kind of say oh this mm-hmm. this isn't just a thing i'm doing on the side right um you talked about it that you have you know, your husband's helping out with management you've got a team of people that are part of it it's, it's more than just a thing you're doing on the side right now. So yeah, no, it is. And, and, you know, I do my stuff. My husband's really the manager. So he's kind of the, the one who, who does it, but I get to still do my fun stuff. And, um, it's actually like really fun and, and it's like a fun way for us to, to work together in a different way. And, um, and, and just like ultimately do something that, that is so different than what we ever thought we would do. Um, but also like, it's, it's so exciting and like really great to be able to do something like this, but also the added benefit of like helping millions of people. Right. And like, that's, that's amazing. One of the things that I see or hear is like, and I'll ask you in a second, but like mm-hmm. the people who are like, Oh, I'm the worst kind of patient. Cause I research my stuff, research everything on the internet. How much of that do you feel like plays a role into kind of what you're putting out there in regards to like your licensed medical professional and you're doing all these things and you know, you have the stuff that you're putting out there is legit versus the stuff that's not. And how much do you run into that per se? Oh my God, so much. And so I think that's, was really the impetus and why I still do this, right? Like everything I post, I research the heck out of before I post it. I read study after study and, you know, we get trained on how to analyze studies. I'm a researcher. I know how to analyze studies. Like I review studies for the journals. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I understand really how to do that. Whereas a lay person or someone who's you know, an influencer who just reads an abstract and comes up with something from a study of 30 people, like that's not, you know, that's not real science. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a step in science. It's not like now this is how we change medicine and that's not how we make decisions about health. And I think the other thing that's opened my mind to is like, we don't know everything. And so like if somebody wants to take a supplement that is not dangerous to their health and they realize that it may or may not work and there's very limited data on it and there probably will never be great data on it because no one's going to put the money into doing that kind of large scale research for a supplement. Um, it's okay, right? Like I'm not against it, but if it's like they're wasting their money and they're expecting miracles and people are peddling them for, you know, saying this is the one thing you need to like change your life and it'll make your penis grow five inches and whatever, like that's just ludicrous, right? So I think there's like a balance there. And I think, um, 
I am that's what really fuels me is like people need to know like what the information is in a digestible way they're not going to read the articles or even understand how to read them so um that's that's you know the key yeah and i think we're seeing youtube is kind of going i, I think i was seeing it they're putting out the more the verified they're mm -hmm. kind of verified their health badges to be like this is a licensed doctor and we have an mpi number and a da number or license all, the, all that stuff to really be like legitimate information versus BS peddling of stuff. With that too, kind of when you, you know, as you've grown bigger, I'm sure you're getting offers from all these people all the time, all the companies and stuff to, oh, influence and do this and this and that. How do you kind of filter stuff out a bit instead of just being like, oh my God, this is somebody's throwing some money at me. Let me take this money. Like, how do you kind of get to balance that out? So I think the, the I mean, I can't say this for everybody, but it's never been about money for me. It's, um, I don't like, fortunately I'm a surgeon, so I don't really have to like worry about those things. And so I think, um, you know, it's never been that. So it's always been about integrity. And like I said, I don't really, I don't do the forefront of that. My husband does, but you know, he will kind of like look it up and, and see if it's valuable and then pitch it to me if, if he thinks that it's valuable. But a lot of them just get no straight out the bat. Like it's not worth it. We don't, you know, we only do any sort of sponsorship that would be, um, you know, something I would prescribe to a patient myself, um, or like something non-medical, right? Like something like, you know, I don't know, um, whatever. I, I can't think of one recently, but you know, something that's not really like a, a prescribed medicaid, like something that I wouldn't tell my patient to take. Um, but like, you know, maybe like food or whatever. So, uh, yeah. For people who are joining this, right? The whole social media put stuff out there, content creation, medical content creation, and they're starting off, right? And they're looking up to you, right? And they're seeing like, how I want to model my videos after your videos or put what I'm doing out there. What advice, what recommendations do you have for those people? Yeah, so I think that the, my recommendation is do it if you like it. Don't do it because you think you want to get a million subscribers because you're never going to get there if you don't enjoy it. Because it takes, I mean, I've been doing it for three years, a little over three years, and it took me a while to get there, right? Like people aren't, like I remember the days where my videos got 100 views or less, right? And and um, it's hard work and it's not easy. So you have to enjoy the journey and you have to do it because you value what you're putting out there and you believe in your message and, and you feel like you, and you have to do some mind work of your own and be like, I'm worthy of putting this out there in the world. Like I'm good enough to do it. And, and everyone has imposter syndrome, but like if you take that imposter syndrome with you, then you're gonna give up real quick. Um, and so I think those are just the most important things is you got to enjoy it and you got to have boundaries like, okay, I'm going to do it, but it's not going to get in the way of my family time or my free time or my friend time or my spouse time or whatever. But like, you know, this is something you do for fun and certainly it can become more than that. But when you start off, like it's really just something you're doing and know what your purpose is. Like, is it to have a message? Is it to grow your practice? Is it to whatever? And then model it based on that. And I think that's really, really, really important, um, the consistency with it. And then also just, I think that realization too, for people that it's work, it is a lot of work. Um, I have, you know, like, I know I was referenced my buddy who convinced me to join TikTok and do this other stuff is he's somebody who had lost his job in a non-medical thing and kind of got started into there. And this is now his job as being a full-time YouTuber, um, and, and 
the amount of work that it takes to kind of get to that point is it's not easy. It's a lot, a lot of work that gets there and a lot of kind of experimenting, making some mistakes and learning and growing and researching from there. And you gotta have thick skin. People will no <laughs> people are gonna say stuff. And if it's gonna bother you, then you can't do this. Like Yeah. Tell, tell yeah, that was a good good segue into the last thing I wanna kinda of talk about is the the haters, right? I always kinda of talk about it with people as the people that are out there and especially like in, in your field, right? Urology, like you know, you're talking about sexual health. There'll be sometimes like I'll come up on like one of your videos and I'll like I'll make a comment or something and then I see all these terrible lewd kind of comments that are there and i'm just like oh my god this is like what she's dealing with every day this is like what people are seeing you know family friends may come across a site and or, or post and want to see this and then terrible shit that's out there like how do you deal with that or what do you kind of how do you work with that yeah i just i really don't spend much time like i scroll through my comments but like i don't i, I got to the i've gotten to the point where like I don't really even like, I just like keep scrolling past them because it doesn't look at some, some troll like behind a screen. Like it doesn't matter. Right. Like they don't have any consequence on my life. So like, it's fine if they took the time to want to post something negative, like, wow, I was worthy of that time. Like, I guess, you know, like you didn't like me enough to post something like most people would just move on with their life. So I guess it's a, it's a positive thing to some degree. And I, I just, I really just don't let it get to me. And you can't, like, you really can't. I mean, I, I think like people will be shocked at the, as you, as you said, like shocked at the things that people say, but you know, I think it's, it's just, uh, it is what it is. And that's it's, part of the, part of the process. I think I, I forget somebody said it along the way. It was like, if you got haters, you're doing something right. And if you got people <laughs> who are, you know, so that's that. So, well, yeah. any any kind of like last things or things that you want to kind of say to the people or who may be listening or watching this? Yeah, I mean, I would just say thank you guys for listening to me talk about sexual health and uh, thank you for subscribing. Make sure you leave a rating for Dr. Mirza's podcast because um, those go a long way and he's doing a great thing and we need to support all the people in medicine who are taking the time out of their busy schedules to create content for the world and I hope you guys follow all of them, learn tons of stuff and um, and to go to your doctors with evidence-based information, not what you Googled from Reddit. <laughs> Yes. How can we follow you? How can everybody else follow along and with your journey as well? Yeah. So find me. Um, all my handles are at Rena Malik MD. So Instagram, Twitter, um, Pinterest, uh, TikTok, and then my YouTube is my name, Rena Malik MD. I'm also on LinkedIn. I think it's Rena D Malik. Um, but you know, happy to see you guys anywhere, but most of my content is on YouTube. Um, if you'd like to watch videos, that's where you can find me and, you know, and I'll leave a comment and let me know something you want me to make. And, um, I do see those comments, uh, and try to try to actually do those things. So, well, thank you for your time. I know from your busy day, I know it's a couple of days before Christmas and you're on call and stuff. So I really appreciate you spending the time with me. It's, you know, I know it's, it's one of those things I say is like, you became like a big star in this YouTube stuff, but you still still remember where you came from in a way. <laughs> you keep you keep Never your peeps. Forget. Never forget your peeps, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate it. So thank you, thank you. Yeah, no problem.